My name is Lauren DiMatteo. I'm a state planning attorney here in Boston, as well as the co-chair of the BBA's Elder Law and Disability Forum, and I have the pleasure of moderating today's panel. Before I introduce our speakers today, I just wanted to go over one administrative matter that Devin just touched on. Um, in a few seconds, I will go off camera, but I will be here monitoring the Q&A um, forum. So please feel free to submit questions as they come about. We are going to try to hold substantive questions to the end, but I will be continually monitoring that. So if it's a clarifying question, I will do my best to politely interrupt our speakers and get you your answers. Otherwise, we'll touch on the questions at, at the end of the program. With that, I would like to introduce our speakers today. Our first speaker is attorney Sarah Hartline, who is a partner at Margolis, Bloom, and D'Agostino. Her practice focuses on estate planning, including special needs and long-term care planning. Our next two speakers join us from Plan of Massachusetts in Rhode Island. We have Joan McGrath and Kathy Patello. Kathy Patello is the executive director of Plan of Massachusetts. Oh, <laughs> I messed up. Uh, Joan McGrath is the Executive Director of Plan of Massachusetts in Rhode Island, and with over 25 years of experience in professional accounting and finance, Joan has been with Plan since 2009. Kathy is the Director of Oper Operations and is a licensed social worker with more than 35 years of experience working with people who are physically challenged, seniors, and those who are chronically ill. And with that, I'll turn it over to Sarah to begin the program. Great, thank you, Lauren, and thank you everyone for joining uh, after this beautiful long weekend. Um, thank you for being here with us. I am going to start the program by talking a little bit about just briefly what is a special needs trust, uh, a special needs trust, which also are referred to as a supplemental needs trust, is an estate planning tool that allows for a disabled individual or a family member of uh, or friend of that uh, individual to set aside what I like to think of as a, a bucket of, of assets or funds that can be used to provide support for that disabled person, um, but also will not be considered a countable asset. Um, uh, for purposes of certain need-based benefit programs like SSI. So, and there's obviously a lot that can be said about special needs trusts and the rules and drafting these trusts, but today what we're really going to focus on is choosing between the different types of trusts and, um, and some related decisions as well, like making uh, choices in terms of, of trustee. I'm going to pull up a handout, which, if I can do this... So this is a handout which I think was also distributed to everyone prior to the program. Um, and this handout uh, is just helpful in terms of comparing the different types of trusts and the different rules that apply. Um, as you can see, this is it's two pages long and there's a lot of differences um, in terms of who can set up the trust, how it can be funded. And the two big, as you'll see, the two big differentiations uh, is whether the trust is what's called a first-party trust or a third-party trust. Uh, and you can see that if you can, I don't know if you can see my mouse, but here you can see the first-party and then the third-party um, trust. A first-party trust is a trust that is funded with funds that are already in um, that disabled person's name or funds that that person is individually entitled to. For example, 
as a result of a settlement or um, perhaps work, um, or even if a relative has gifted funds to that person individually. Um, and the first party, uh, by setting up a first party trust, it allows for that disabled person to put the funds into this first party. It's also called a safe harbor trust, um, first party trust so that they can immediately become eligible by transferring those funds and getting themselves under whatever the um, those that 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 re relevant limit um, to qualify for some type of whether it's a, um, a program such as SSI um, or other um, benefit program with some type of a, an asset limit. So this is here. So these are the the first party, and within the first party, you still see you have the pooled and the individual, and then the third party trust. Those are trusts that are actually created by a third third party, um, hence the name third party trust, and that's a party other than the disabled individual. Um, so this, again, often a, a family member um, or a friend who is putting funds into the trust directly um, for the benefit of the disabled person. Um, and the funds are never actually um, going into or passing through the name of that disabled individual. And in most situations, the rules for the third party trusts are more favorable. Um, and so in terms of things like the Medicaid payback, which you'll see, I can switch to the next page, maybe not, but um, on the second page. Um, so this type of trust is generally preferred, but in some um, situations, um, a first party trust may be the only option. The other big difference um, is, as I had mentioned, the difference between the pooled and the individual trusts. So individual trusts are sort of the standard estate planning trust that you might expect for an attorney to draft for an individual as part of an estate plan or estate plan um, of a family member. For example, a family member may meet with an attorney to sign a will, leaving assets to children, and may set up a special needs trust uh, for a share for one of those one of the children for a disabled child. For other families, though, uh, a pool trust may make more sense than an individual trust. A pool trust you can think of as sort of a um, mega trust that's opened and administered by a nonprofit organization for the benefit of many beneficiaries. And although all of those funds are pooled, um, each individual has their own sub-account. Um, and because there's efficiencies in terms of administering all the sub-accounts as that single trust fund, it's often a more cost-effective option for disabled individuals, um, particularly if the individual doesn't have a family member to serve as a trustee um, and there's some type of a professional management needed. The other big reason for the use of the pool trust is uh, for pool trust is is that um, for this first party pool trust, um, as you can see down here, um, there is an age limit, and so the uh, first party individual trust must be set up for an individual with a dis disability prior to the age of sixty five, um, and it also must be funded prior to the age of sixty five. It's if it's an individual trust, and so for people who are over the age of 65 uh, the, and, and do have funds in their name that they, they need to spend down, the first party pool trust here um, might be really you know, one of the only options that they have in terms of transferring funds at that point. And then finally, I'm gonna touch briefly in terms of this other category here, the ABLE accounts. 
um, which is a relatively new tool for special needs planning. Uh, it's sort of like a 529 uh, sort of account where you can choose a specific state to open the account. The open the account is open directly with the financial institution. For example, in Massachusetts, I believe it's Fidelity. And the funds can be used for the disabled person as needed over time. There's some great convenient things about ABLE accounts that set them apart from the other types of trusts. For example, they can be used for housing, housing expenses without reducing SSI benefits. That's different than some of the other trusts. And also, unlike other trust accounts, the disabled beneficiary themselves, if they have capacity, can make spending decisions, as you can see down here, um, whereas the other accounts, the trustee, not the beneficiary, is making decisions. So those are some of the unique things about the ABLE account. That said, there are also limits here on the ABLE accounts um, that aren't present for the other types of trusts. And again, if I can figure out how to go to the second page, I would, but as you'll see on the second page, um, it, it overviews that um, some of those limits, specifically that there's generally a limit of $17,000 per year that can be added to the ABLE account. And there's also a balance limit of $100,000 total um, at any time for an ABLE account. Um, beyond that would affect benefits like SSI. So that's a sort of big picture overview of the different types of trust and the different considerations that you might be um, thinking about when choosing a trust. I'm gonna turn it over now to both Kathy and Joan um, of the plan who are gonna talk now about picking a trustee and also some general administration um, issues that come up with these different types of trusts. So I'll take it from here. Thank you so much. Um, so the picking, a one thing I wanted to mention about the ABLE account, and maybe I didn't hear you say it, there is a clawback for the ABLE account um, for, from the time that you open the account forward. Um, so one of the things that is great between a trust and the ABLE account is the trust can fund the ABLE account up to that $17,000. Um, so, uh, so picking a, the responsibilities of a trustee uh, to the beneficiary. So you want to you want to make sure you pick somebody that can administer the trust um, to the uh, benefit of the beneficiary. So they understand the rules. You know, Kathy um, can speak to that. The rules related to um, beneficiaries. Um, so you want to know what the services are that they're needing, what they're what they're currently receiving, what they will intend on receiving in the future. Um, you need to have a trustee that can look at the situation that the person's in and realize that, oh, they should be taking advantage of this benefit. Um, so, you know, you need to have somebody that has the technical skills and knowledge as a trustee. Uh, many times we meet people that say, I want my aunt to be the trustee. Um, the trustee needs to be someone that understands the rules of the benefits that the person is on. Um, they need to know how to invest the money um, they need to know the rules required um, that they need to send out annual statements. Um, they need to be able to send out um, annual tax returns of being a grantor letter or a K-1, depending on what trust they're on, first party versus third party. Um, it's a full-time job. So you really need to find somebody knowledgeable in um, benefits in that type of disability. So um, as we always say when we do our own webinars, um, that it, um, it removes the responsibility from the family member, yeah, the parent, um, the grandparent, the um, 
siblings, anyone, so that they can maintain that family relationship, which we feel is very important to support the person with the disability. Um, they could work with the trustee and, and um, that caregiver, the family member can work with the trustee and express their concerns. Um, so all trust-related investing, accounting, taxes, all the fiduciary reporting handled, and it needs to be done in a professional manner. So we often meet people that come to us, you know, two years in and realize it's too big of a job. Um, so let's see here. What else do I want to say about that? I guess um, we've had a lot of families through the years that have come to us that they've kicked a family member. Um, and all of a sudden they become adults, they go to school, they start careers, they want to get married. And um, so we've had families, we had one family where the brother was going to be the trustee, but he moved across the country and felt like he couldn't do that anymore. Another time it was um, a family member, by the time the trust was funded and the person became the trustee, they couldn't manage it anymore because of their own health issues. So then they have to begin to search for another trustee. So one of the things that we had talked about before was um, disbursements being recognized as income mm -hmm. um, because they were maybe cash was paid to the individual, which is a no-no. You can't give money to the individual. Um, disbursements to third parties for food and shelter or in-kind support maintenance. The person that's receiving that needs to know that they could lose part of their uh, benefit. So it really has to be a situation where um, you know you don't want them to be homeless. Um, but we we have met many families that have made disbursements on behalf of for their child, not realizing that they were impacting their social security income. Um, let's see. So you know we follow all the rules that are in the POMS, the Program Operation Manual System that Social Security publishes, and they usually start at. Um, SI 01120.200 is usually where they all begin, and that's where you'll find the information on the sole benefit rules, um, which they loosened up a couple of years ago so that you don't deny for a secondary gain about only having one car. If you have two cars, that's considered an asset. So that's where all those rules lay. And as Joan said, you know, we look at that SSI benefit and we look at the beneficiaries' needs. And if they're homeless or they don't have funds to buy food, well, clearly, if there's funds in a trust, you'll want to be able to use them. They just need to understand the risk of doing that. You know, when we don't pay for, you know, and this is something that's different from trust to trust, but we don't pay for gambling, we don't pay for alcohol, we don't pay for pornography, ammunition, um, and weapons. And they can't give gifts because of this old benefit rule. So how do we compare that to um, the ABLE account? So ABLE, uh, it's funny because they say qualified disability expenses, but it's not 100% clear because the IRS wrote those regulations. So it's kind of iffy about the oversight. But with the um, ABLE account, it is allowed for them to pay for the rent food utility. So if you have somebody that can manage that, that helps not only get around that um, restriction, but it also helps provide some autonomy um, and independence for a beneficiary. Um, but they just have to make sure that they do accounting um, 
So it is $17,000 a year right now. It's based on the IRS gift tax rate. But if the disabled beneficiary is working, they can put additional funds into the account. I think it's up to $13,000. Um, but if you go over the $100,000, your benefits are suspended. Um, and at $500, you'll lose your benefits. So you don't want to restart applying for benefits if you don't have to. And it is a great partnership between the trust and the ABLE account. Right. So there is a payback. That's what mm -hmm. a lot of people don't realize. Yeah, it's um, the clawback. So I know they're there. They have to be diagnosed before the age of 26. And that's been moved up in 2026 to right. 46? 46 years old. Yeah. yeah so definitely some. It's uh, advantageous. Yes. Um, and somebody, somebody actually just asked a question. I don't know if it came up on your screen. They were just asking, can you clarify on the balance restrictions? Is the gift restriction 17,000 per donor or is it total contributions total. for the year? Total contributions for the year. Right. So if there's a, two different people making contributions, they can't both add 17,000 each. That's right. And you can only have one ABLE account. So um, if grandma in Wisconsin wants to open that ABLE account, that's the only one that you can have. When you can have more than one trust, in the first party, in the third party, in the pool, in the first or third in the pool. And we have lots of folks that do what they call future-funded accounts, which means they set up their estates, but it's the beneficiary designation on insurance or IRAs or whatever that will fund the account when the time comes. So getting back to picking a trustee, when you have a trustee in place, um, you could have a bank, you could have another attorney, or you can have a, a nonprofit, or you can have the family. You could, you could pick the trustee. Um, so, you know, the, part of the idea of picking a trustee is you, we get a lot of people with um, mental health issues. So um, family members find they can't deal with a person that has uh, mental health issues. And we find that attorneys don't want to deal with mental health issues. I shouldn't say all. Mm -hmm. um, some, it's because it's difficult. It's very difficult. Um, we have trained social workers on staff that um, are skilled at dealing with people with mental health issues. Um, it's the same with the bank. So we get referrals from other organizations because they find they can't handle that. Um, so again, you really do need to consider what the disability is. Um, so I, should we move on to the administration piece? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Um, I'll let you start with that. So administering the trust, obviously you need to know what's in your trust documents. And the example that we were used a long time ago was that if you can't have a haircut on Tuesdays, if it's in your trust document, you pay for a haircut on Tuesday, you just violated your own trust document. It's the same thing with the pool, even though it's the master trust, it's really important that folks understand what's in our trust documents. So for us, we firmly believe that in order to serve as trustee for a beneficiary with a disability, it's important we know who they are. So you wanna look at the beneficiary's needs, anticipated needs, their living situation, what benefits they're on, all of those things, to, and then help identify some of the things they need right away and some of the things that we might look at down the road. And then what are some of their wishes? You know, we've done some really nice things for folks with their trusts that they haven't been able to do because they didn't have the funds available. So typically someone will join the trust and um, we go over with them how it all works. So uh, someone will send in an expense to be paid. Um, it's reviewed by the trust officer and her team. 
um, with input from the social worker because they, as Kathy said, know the beneficiary. Um, and then it's, you know, you want to make sure you get checks out in a timely manner. So um, the trustee needs to be able to do that, issue checks in a timely manner and make sure that the um, expenses being paid don't violate that benefit that the person may be on. So if you talk about some of the uh, expenses that can be covered by the trust. Clothing, uh, vacations, technology, Let's see, things that aren't covered for by insurance, you know, hearing aids, uh, dental work, because as we all know, they'll pull your, Medicaid will pull your teeth, but they won't fix them. So people get implants and root canals done. Um, yeah, so supplements, anything that like, Medicaid won't pay for. Yeah. So for instance, that I always think about the chair pad. Oh yeah, the chair pad, the gel pads, one every five years. Well, if you're in a wheelchair 24 seven, that's not gonna last five years. So it's things like that that they look at. Um, yeah, so our disbursements are based on um, the decisions that we make, and it's completely the trustee's responsibility. Right. So we had people that have submitted invoices for outrageous um, accounting bills. So, um, you know, to prepare a tax return for an 87-year-old woman, um, should not cost $2,600. So we, that's the kind of thing that we need to then go back to the attorney and say, hey, you can't charge $2,600. Yeah. You know, it can't be something that's frivolous. You know, we had one beneficiary that, uh, this was early on when I started with Plan that wanted a picture of a famous rock singer, a museum-style painted portrait with museum frames and museum lightings, and then for the beneficiary to be painted in with the musician for a whopping 10 grand. So that wasn't approved. <laughs> um, so do you want to talk a bit about the benefits that people would be on? Oh, yeah. So, you know, just your means-tested, your means-tested benefits are the ones that we really have to pay the closest attention to because we don't want to interrupt those benefits, right? So... As you all know, in Massachusetts, it's $2,000. Um, in Rhode Island, um, other than the SSI, it's $4,000. But, you know, people get the SSP, which is now, I just wrote it down, up to um, like $70, I think, now. And then there's the SNAP benefits and heating assistance. So we don't want to interrupt those benefits. We want folks to, we hope at the end of the day, learn a little bit about fiduciary responsibility or budgeting, especially for the younger folks. Um, so we encourage them to use their income and then we can supplement, making sure they still have enough income for day-to-day -day expenses. We look at um, houses, especially for the folks that are in nursing homes for that 65 and over that they have those life estates. We're restricted to what we can pay for those, but um, if the house is empty, then we can pay for the minimum utilities, we can pay for um, the real estate taxes and the homeowner's insurance and the, you know, uh, plowing and landscaping services so that the house doesn't fall into disrepair. Um, it's the same thing when folks need to fix things or update things. We can't upgrade. So if you have Formica counters, we need to replace them with Formica counters. We can't increase the value of the house, um, but we can pay for those things. Um, but if somebody's living in the property, then we're more limited as to what we can pay. We can pay for the insurance and the real estate taxes, but we can't pay for the utilities because that's not sole benefit anymore. 
Yeah, just enough to keep the lights on so it yeah. doesn't freeze, the pipes don't freeze. Right, yeah. Um, I think we hit on everything. I think we, we hit on everything. Um, is there anything in particular anybody has questions about? We can't see the questions, so. I don't see any questions. I think I, I was just going to add one thing, um, which I think going back to what you were talking about, about having to be careful about making distributions. Um, and also, you know, particularly where there are, as you mentioned, sometimes people might have more than one trust. They might have uh, a third party, a first party, yeah. and, and mm -hmm. an ABLE account, you know, they could have. And so um, not only is it really important, Important to know the rules because you want to make sure you know that if you are making that housing payment that it comes from the able account funds that bucket of funds versus right. another one um so i think that that's another thing where sometimes you know a lay person may not have that you know where it is a more complicated situation and there's more um buckets i've also heard too of um of now with the able account some attorneys are even drafting into their their like third party trust that funds could be moved over to the ABLE account. And so then you can also do, you know, if there's not any other funds going into the ABLE account that year, you could even move over the 17,000 that year from the third party over to the ABLE. Yeah. And um, depending, always depends on the situation and, you know, whether that might be worth it or not. But um, those are sort of those complications that come with having these, these different buckets and different rules. Right. And the housing rules are changing. I don't know if everybody's aware of that, but they're all changing. So it seems to me every time we find a workaround, they catch up to it and change. Close that door on us. So. Very possible. Very possible. So, I don't you know, other questions, Lauren, that you wanted to. I didn't. There's none that came in from the audience, but one that I was thinking, which is, you know, the million dollar question here. You guys have done a great job of cautioning everyone as to the intricacies of administering these trusts once they're drafted properly. So it sounds like having a professional trustee would be a great um, idea. But what are the general fees? How do you guys charge if you are serving in that role um, as professional trustee? So the fees, it, you know, so if you went to an attorney, you'd be paying hourly attorney fees, um, you know, um, and I won't say what you all know what your fees are, um, <laughs> but a bank, you'd be paying, um, you know, uh, at least one and a half percent for the trust administration. Um, and then you still have the um, investment of funds and you still have to, you need social services include that. So um, we find that to hire a case manager is $125 to $150 an hour. Mm -hmm. um, ours is included in, in, on staff. Um, and um, so you need to really consider all of that. In, you know, and so again, if you want to be in a pool trust versus a standalone, it depends on what you're looking for for services. Um, with us, it's all in one. We have the investment of funds. The trust administration and the social services all in one. We charge 3%. Uh, once you hit 500,000, then it reduces and it continues to reduce until you get to a million. And at that point, it's 75 basis points um, going forward. Um, so that's what we pay for the investment of bonds is 75 basis points. Yeah, most folks, when they get a 3%, they get panicky. Like, that's a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. But when you break it down, that you have your social worker, and it covers your investments. It covers your trust disbursements. It covers the accounting. When you break it down that way, it really isn't 
a lot and the funds are invested, right? So one of the things that we do, which others don't do, is uh, we take inherited IRAs. Um, inherited IRAs can come to us. Um, there is no tax consequence because it's going from one, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, recognized uh, inher- uh, IRA to another. So it just rolls over. We take RMDs. Um, so we have that kind of skilled um, investment, which not everybody has. Um, we have that as part of our relationship with our investment manager. And so, um, you know, that's one thing we found out in Rhode Island that people don't realize that that's, that's a, not everybody offers it. Um, so, again, we feel like we bring a lot more to the table than your average trustee. So we feel like the 3% um, is well worth it because you get a de- designated social worker that's with you for the life of the trust. Um, what else do I want to talk about? Something I was just looking at here. Questions? Um, one well, of the questions... Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, well, I was going to say, one of the questions that you had submitted to us was, um, is there a certain level of uh, or type of disability someone must have to qualify for these trusts? No. Um, if you are on SSI, you need to have it needs to be documented. Otherwise, you just need to tell us what the disability is. So, as I said, we have a lot of people with mental health issues, which, you know, uh, many people that have mental health issues do not want to have a diagnosis. Um, they they recognize that they have an issue. Their family knows they have an issue. They put money and trust in a third party trust for that person. We just got an application. That the diagnosis was allergic to people. Yeah. Yeah. So it has to be a real issue, but that person has um, social issues. Um, So we work a lot with um, NAMI, uh, National Associated of Mental Illness. We work with AANE. We actually give uh, substantial grants to AANE, Special Olympics Best Buddies, all of the um, um, organizations that work with like constituents. Um, Makes sense. How much money? Oh, I'm sorry. I could jump in. Someone just said, what is the name of your organization? So that would be a a good one. (laughs) Yeah. Planned Lifetime Assistance Network of Massachusetts and Rhode Island, or PLAN of MANRI. We've been around for over 50 years. We were incorporated in 1971 by families of children with disabilities looking for ways to advocate for those children. Um, and so they, you know, there's lots of organizations out there that deal with the day-to-day um, uh, hands-on, um, but we are exclusively trusts. So we work with disabled people that need trust services. Um, we have no minimums. So if you go to a bank, you're going to need half a million, a million dollars or more. You can come to us with um we have no minimum. So you could come with any amount of money. We recommend it be 10,000 or above, but we have people that are with the Northeast Arc. They have extra money that would throw them over asset so they can put it into a trust. So that's what we do. We, we uh, collect that money and save it for them. So that you can only buy so many recliners. Um, so what they're doing is they're putting money aside that maybe they could go on vacation. Um, maybe they could, um, what else? someone could do they you know buy a bed for their apartment or you know something more substantial what about Uh, um, 
a question that I know often comes up about what about um, like travel for other family members that are coming to visit them. Um, so so how does it, work? yeah, so that the answer to that question happens to be in the palms. It has to be a power of attorney or a healthcare proxy that is traveling related to that role. Um, and then we can pay for their travel expenses to come out. It's not unusual to see uh, an older person named the, the eldest child who lives in Easter Bipola <laughs> as the person that makes those decisions. So, yes. So what about the um, person that's going on a vacation or something, the disabled person? Who can we pay for for that? So we can pay for a companion to go with that person on a vacation, um, which we do a lot. We have a lot of folks that will do that. They never had that opportunity before. So, um, yeah. So we just had a grandmother fly to Alaska, right? Yeah. To visit her grandchildren. She'd never been there before. She hadn't met them. She hadn't met that half of her family. Yeah. So she was able to use the funds in her trust to fly to Alaska with caregiver and meet family members that she had never met before. Yeah. So there's, a, so yeah, there's a lot that trust can do. That caregiver, just for clarification on my end, doesn't have to be an agent under one of those um, documents. Okay, great. No, but we do have to use some sort of a payroll company for them. So if they're not through an agency, we typically, we use a lot of, um, often we use teams, but there's another organization out there as well that does it. Yeah. So any funds that are come from the trust for that caregiver, it would go through the normal payroll process, Mm -hmm. you know, so that they get the, you know, um, they're covered. The taxes are taken care of and they're they're covered. Um, and then insured. Yes. Yeah. So um, great. What other types of disbursements do we do, Kathy? That are we do a lot of um, technology, you know, computers and laptops and cell phone, um, furniture. Mm, trying to think. We can pay for pet care. Yep. Person has a, a uh, pet. We, we can pay for the uh, that bills because that's that's their their it doesn't have to be a service animal it can just be an emotional support yeah right so, so we do a lot of that um, in different ways to fund a trust another topic a lot of people ask questions about that I have no money what do I do I have no money I know I need to set up a trust for my child you know we meet people through Special Olympics where. The parents are in their 80s and their child is still alive. They weren't expecting their disabled child to live as long as they did. Mm. Um, so what do you do? So uh, they set up a third party trust. And so the money can fund once they, they pass through their will or um, life insurance. You know, if, if it's a younger parent, they can set up life insurance and know that if they pass, it'll fund the trust. Um, trying to think about the... Um, you know, uh, we have a lot of people that fund a trust by uh, court order, mm-hmm. or um, those are the people that think they've won megabucks. Yes. You know, <laughs> yeah. 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 One person that came into the trust in 98 page disbursement request. <laughs> so, um, oh, yes, the disinherited child question. That we hear a lot, and I'm sure that you all hear that as well. Um, there is no need to disinherit a child. Um, and I, I understand the concern about benefits. Um, what you want to do is set up a third-party trust. If you set up a third-party trust, that child can continue on their benefits. They still receive um, that inheritance. 
It's in a trust and it can be used for their benefit to improve the quality of their life. It helps protect the beneficiary as well. We've had many cases of the years where people have been exploited because they have those funds available and there's no oversight. So that helps protect as well. And then we've had folks that, you know, they'll they'll do their estate plan and they'll pick a, an executor and they want the executive to fund the trust. But then the executive says, no, I have a better idea for these funds. And they end up losing the money for, for folks. So yeah. this gives them peace of mind that it, there'll be a professional trustee in place. Yeah. And I think too, I think one of the other things that comes up that people don't realize is that even if everybody is, you know, even if, um, so that situation where they, maybe they have three children and they say, we're just going to give the money to the other two children. But you know, the, what I always hear is, you know, what, what we trust those kids, they'll take care of that, that third, that third child. Um, and I think one of the concerns is, is that even if there aren't any, you know, even if they're great siblings and they are going to take, want to, you know, have all the best of intentions. Um, they don't realize that, you know, one of those children, for example, could go through a divorce, um, right. or, um, or even pass away. Um, and that all of a sudden, you know, it doesn't matter if they really intended to take care of that sibling. Now the money's not there. It's not protected. Um, so I think that that's really important to understand, um, that even, um, if they are, great responsible kids. Um, there's just all these other things that are out of your control. Mm-hmm. You want to speak to the judge? If someone was in a car accident, they can't be sued. Yeah. Um, so the money, if it's in trust, so the beneficiaries in a car accident, they can't be sued because the money's in trust. It's judgment group. They can, no one can get to it. So that's a huge benefit. Um, um doesn't stop people from trying. Right. <laughs> exactly. So one of the things about trust administration we should talk about is the um, early termination and the winding up of a trust. Um, so when a, so the POMS address this um, in early termination, uh, once the trust balance gets so low that it's, it's, uh, it's um, not cost beneficial to administer the trust anymore, um, we follow the rules uh, related to um, Medicaid payback first. So for instance, if the trust is with us, um, there's a closing fee, which uh, pays for our attorney and our accountant to do all the paperwork. Um, and then what's left goes to Medicaid. Um, so, but if it's uh, someone that is passed away, and in our case, we, we start the closing process at about $1,200. We start notifying, talk to the beneficiary. We know, they know that it's happening. Um, we don't have a whole lot of these. Um, and then whatever else, what's left in the trust, if this is all a first party um, at the close, would then go to Medicaid, which could be $500, dollars um, If the person is um, closing um, due to death, um, what happens is, well, we, there's a Massachusetts law that says you need to keep a, uh, you need to keep open the account for a year. And you probably all know that. Um, and um, but if if you can get a release signed, you can close it sooner than a year. So we try and close uh, trust here between three to six months after death. Um, once someone is, uh, we are notified that someone died. We send a copy of the death certificate to Medicaid, and it could be any Medicaid. If they lived in six states, we have to send it to all six states um, and see what their claim is. Um, once the claim comes back. Um, we can pay the claim. 
Um, uh, we take a fee um, anywhere between 10 and 20%. Um, in other states, they take 100%, pay nothing to Medicaid, but in our state, um, all the pool trusts try and stay within a certain dollar amount. And so it's usually between uh, 10 and 20%. Um, and then what's left goes to the family. So, um, you know, uh, the only thing that we can pay after death are funeral expenses. No, I'm sorry. The only thing we can't pay after death are funeral expenses. So once someone joins a trust, we always ask them to set up a prepaid funeral. Um, so taxes can be paid before Medicaid um, and the reasonable uh, administration of a trust, which we mentioned to you as the um, fee that we charge. Uh, it's $500, right? $500, yeah. Um, prohibited expenses um, would be estate taxes arising from other assets. So we get that a lot. Um, we get people thinking that we can pay the estate taxes. A trust cannot pay the estate taxes. It can only pay the amount that the trust caused those estate taxes. Um, funeral, funeral expenses, as I mentioned, and um, we are prohibited from paying anything after death. So if a person passes away and there's a bill that's hanging out there, we can't pay that bill, even if it was incurred prior to death. We can't pay that before Medicaid. Medicaid always has to be paid first. Um, let's see here. So in our case, once we receive the death certificate, um, we uh, notify the Medicaid. I'm going through my timeline here. Um, the trust um, stays open for a year so that creditors can file claims. But again, we can't pay those for Medicaid. So if Medicaid has a claim that's more than what's in the trust, no one else gets paid. If Medicaid has a smaller claim, we can pay those other um, claims. Um, but what we've been hearing from uh, attorneys is that they want it to not be open for a year. So we get a release signed and then the person, the remainder person gets all the money um, once Medicaid is paid. If there is no claim for Medicaid, then the remainder people get everything. Um, and it's all depending on, it's not per the um, will, it's what's in the documents, the trust documents. Um, and then a final 1041 is issued, and that's the responsibility of whoever's filed the tax returns in the past to use the 1041. I'm sorry, not the 1041, the grantor letter. We file the 1041. Um, I think that's all I have for you. Mm -hmm. Great. I don't see that there are any other questions that came in. So I think this is probably a good place to end it. Thank you all for speaking today. This is really informative. And thank you all for joining us. Um, Devin, I don't know if you have any closing remarks or if we can just leave it at that. 